welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Fair warning, Laura's definitely very salty this morning, so uh, what are we going to talk about? A very interesting and, and a pretty controversial case, which is good for Sarah and I, and it's a Charlie Tan case, a Cornell case. It's pretty hard not to like Charlie Tan. It really is. I mean, I think by all accounts, Charlie Tan was a really good kid. Even at 19 years old, his credo was non-sibby, which means not for self. But on February 5th, 2015, Tan took a shotgun and blew his father's face off in their upscale home in Rochester, New York. Or did he? So what led to this popular smart kid with a stellar future ahead of him to make such a fatal decision? So join Laura and I as we discuss the case in this week's episode, Cornell's Charlie Tan, Morally Innocent, Legally Guilty, question mark. I just want to also forewarn our listeners that this is a true crime podcast. We discuss pretty disturbing details of this case. So it's a true be, crime be podcast. Aware. So right. Be aware. Part of the fun thing that we did and part of why we chose a Cornell case is that we happened upon a guy named Steve. Oh. And Steve is just a doll and he's a historian and he went to Cornell and he was just full of amazing stories and such a find. Steve actually lives in Medford, Mass, near Tufts, and he met us for coffee, and he just told us all about his experience at Cornell, and it was really, really fascinating, so we're really grateful to Steve. Yeah, that's right, and one thing I loved about him was that I guess he would read the old Cornell archive papers and just like geek out on them. Well, he told us the library was open, which I have never heard of, 24 hours a day. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I didn't catch that. Yeah, so he would go at like 3 o'clock in the morning and he could just go through yearbooks and go through old things. As a historian, he had access to all of that. And he's really sort of into dark history, which is really our, our vibe. But one thing he told us was that there is a famous suicide bridge at Cornell called Gorgeous Bridge. If you remember the Michael Bruce Ross case. Right. That was the bridge that he threw his first victim off of. They thought she was a suicide until they really looked at her injuries. So I thought that was an interesting parallel to another case that we had covered at Cornell. And I think it's referred to as the gorge. And, and Steve was saying it's often called the suicide school because there's so many suicides at the gorge. But it, I'm not sure it has statistically more suicides. It's just because we'll, we'll post pictures of the gorge. I mean, it's really a grand place. It's a very grand place. And it's kind of the way the Golden Gate Bridge is for suicides. Right. It's kind of this final splash. 
So exactly. And Steve said that he'd been back recently or a few years ago, I don't recall, and that they had put up some safety measures to prevent. To prevent the suicide. Right, to prevent the suicide. Which is good. That's smart. Right, which is very smart. So on a lighter note, Steve was also telling us about Cornell's secret society called Quill and Dagger. If you call that a lighter note, Sarah. (laughs) I think that we may on a future episode explore the dark side of some of these secret societies. So one of the cool details that he said, he said he had a friend who was part of this Quill and Dagger and that she, I love that it's co-ed, had a ring that activated this birdcage iron elevator that would take them up to this penthouse and into the room of the quill and dagger but i love that idea it's so batman i honestly wouldn't have believed it if i didn't hear it we should talk about some of the other creepy happenings at cornell and sarah steve told us that he would often walk by a uh, display of brains on the way to class what's that about oh my god okay so one of the brains on display belongs to someone named edward ruloff now ruloff allegedly killed his wife and his daughter and threw them into the river right around Cornell. They never discovered the bodies. He was sentenced to 10 years hard labor and he escaped and he actually had another life for the next few years, which included being an academic who was extremely intelligent. They ended up hanging Ruloff in 1870, but apparently his brain was the second largest in the world, and it's still kept at Cornell. So, of course, Laura and I had to joke around about, like, check out the big brain on Ruloff. (laughs) (laughs) I actually think that Steve told us that he was held in extremely high regard academically at the time. That's right. So when he did kill again, it was, like, extremely shocking. That's right. Because he did, he's implicated in this first murder. I didn't mention that. I'm sorry. He became an academic for a while. Mm -hmm. And then he took up the life of crime of burglary and murder again. So, yeah, he was obviously an evil genius. Yes. Right up the Ivy League murders. uh, Something we may have to explore in a future case. And we're always interested in traditions at colleges. And I have to tell you one of my favorites, Sarah. And as I often mention, I went to University of Miami, a big sports school, and we had our traditions. None of them quite this disgusting. <laughs> the big sport at Cornell is hockey, and the big game is the Cornell-Harvard game. And apparently, we can't figure out the origins, but it became a tradition to throw dead fish on the ice. So this has been outlawed for decades. However, people still, sneak dead fish in under their suits in winter coats or you know you're obviously in an ice rink and throw dead fish onto the ice and we have posted pictures on Facebook of them cleaning up these dead fish and this just brings to mind these buttoned up Ivy Leaguers in their Brooks Brothers like sneaking like Right. rotting fish under right, their with jackets. like a bass in their pocket <laughs> <laughs> which I you know Cornell is heavy in tradition and I think that's kind of a fun one actually I love sports tradition I think it's a lot of fun and, and that was one I didn't know about and check out the pictures because they're pretty funny watching them pick before the Zamboni they have to pick up all the dead fish oh man poor guys but anyway so this has sort of been like Toad's wild ride into uh, Cornell for now. Uh, But we'd be remiss, very remiss, by not mentioning notable alumni who had gone to to Cornell. And most highest on our list is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes. Rest in peace, Ruth. You did a lot of good in this world. 
the, the list of alumni is countless. And we want to, Bill Nye, the science guy, went to Cornell. Uh, Tony Morrison, Superman, Christopher Reeve, he's an Ivy Leaguer. And Ann Coulter, Bill Maher. Laura, we got to get to some true crime here. That's right. So take us back to that February 5th, 2015, that fateful day. Just to back up a little bit, Charlie Tan was a sophomore at Cornell. Yes, he was. And Charlie Tan was a super popular, handsome kid. He did so, and he was also athletic, and he did something called sprint football. Tell us a little bit about sprint fo- football, because since you're the UM lady. Right. Well, UM doesn't have sprint football. I know, I know, but it has football, okay? <laughs> you have to be under 178 pounds, so that that's basically like what UM football players carry in their backpacks. So, but, so, so Laura and I both qualify. We qualify. Well, we qualify for sprint football. I, I'm, I'm kidding. It's actually an exciting sport because it's since you have to be under 178, it's more like a fast pace. Yeah, you got to be lean, you got to be strong, right. you got to be fast. You fast. You know. Charlie Chan was also extremely involved in his fraternity, as Sarah mentioned in the opening. I mean, his fraternity brothers were really like his family at Cornell. Yeah, absolutely. And um, but so that day on February 5th, Charlie went to his coach who he was quite close to, and he had clearly been crying. He was very upset, and he told his coach, hey, I'm not going to be here Friday for weightlifting because he had to go home and deal with some family issues. Coach was very concerned and said, hey, Charlie, give me a call when you get home. I want to make sure you're okay, but the coach would not hear from Charlie for days. And so that same day, Charlie goes through all of these loopholes to try to buy a gun, Sarah, at Walmart. And he tries to purchase a Remington 870 pump action shotgun, which this is the most popular shotgun that there is. And he's unable to buy it and get it the same day because he's a Canadian citizen. That's right. So he then enlists in fraternity. Some people know that you have like big brothers, little brothers. His little brother, Whitney Neckerbocker, to go in and buy the gun for him, which he says he needs for a hunting trip. And Whitney Knickerbocker, he buys him some beer in order to do him the favor, and he goes and buys him the gun. So Charlie gets a gun that day, and he drives home. Charlie Tanser came from a town called Pittsford, New York, which was a pretty affluent town. He and Whitney purchased the gun close to Cornell. And Pittsburgh is about 120 miles away. So, And it's a suburb of Rochester. That's right. And he lives in, I would say, about a $1.2 million home. Yeah, a very nice home. A very nice home. And, you know, he goes home. He goes and has dinner with his friend Annie and her boyfriend. And then he winds up at his best friend from high school, Jacob's house, at about 10 o'clock. And so he's acting off. He's emotional. He tells Jacob he may be leaving the country. And Jacob's concerned enough about Charlie that when he leaves, he tells his mother. And Jacob and his mother drive to Charlie's house. I mean, this is how worried he is. But listen, Sarah, this is like his best friend. And they drive to his house and they call 911 and they have or the police and they have them do a welfare check. So the police do show up around 1130. Charlie answers the door and he's, you know, he's cool and calm. But that night, we know that the mother, Jean Tan, and Charlie pack their bags and they drive up to Canada. And you also read that Charlie had emptied their bank accounts at this point. Yes, he did. He emptied their bank accounts prior to leaving for Canada. 
the only thoughts we can have here is that he was planning to flee. Jean and Charlie end up meeting Charlie's brother, Jeff, in Canada. We don't hear a whole lot about Jeff in this case, and we'll address that. Yeah, I think he's kind of the family intentionally kind of keeps him out of this. So, Sarah, we really don't hear much from Charlie uh, or, you know, his mother or brother over the weekend. The next anyone really hears is on February 9th when his fraternity brothers receive an email titled Showtime from Charlie. And what does that email say, Sarah? The email reads, My brothers, in the coming days, you'll start to hear things in the news and possibly get a couple of visits from the authorities. Don't listen to anything you hear. If you already know my true story, and in due time, if you don't, you will. I love you all so much, and you've given me the family I never had. I can only hope I've left a positive impression on all of your lives as well. Non-sibby, which if you remember means not of self. The best days are ahead of us all, and I promise I will be back in the future. In the meantime, I hope you'll visit. As always, fuck the haters. Love, Charlie. That's right. And I mean, truly fuck the haters, Sarah, because they were in Canada and Tans had bought one-way tickets to Shanghai. So, I mean, they obviously at some point were planning to flee, but clearly had had second thoughts about it. I think their second thoughts were this. I think that basically he did not want his mother to get blamed for what was waiting at their house in Rochester for the police. I think we have to back up a little bit here, Laura, and talk about what was Charlie Tan had alluded to in that email with his frat brothers, which is basically some of you know the truth. And that truth was this legacy of domestic violence in the Tan house. Yeah, I mean, Jean Tan called the police 911 18 times prior to that day on February 5th. Sarah, I mean, one time's alarming. 18 times. I mean, that's clearly some big red flags there that this was an abusive household. And obviously it's implied in the email that some of his friends do know about this. Right. But I think to most people that the Tan family really appears to be the American dream. Jim Tan is successful. He's got a big business. It's worth millions. They just seem to be living the American dream. Right. A son in an Ivy League school, very wealthy. So I think from the outside, and I wonder if the police, and you know me, I'm very pro-law enforcement. I just, I have a very hard time with the fact that the police took no action. We've heard these 911 calls, some of them. So alarming why the police didn't step in and actually do something. Jean Tan made a call on January 28th to the police saying, my husband is attacking me. He's strangling me. Someone please help me. And so we'll play that call for you right now so you can get a sense of what was going on. So that's January 28th, Laura. That is a few days before February 5th. Let's play that now, Sarah. Okay. Mr. Jean Tan, and uh, my husband just beats me up. I need your protection. Are you injured? Yes, um, he choked me, and uh, I'm so scared. To me, I think that this 911 call may have been the event that precipitated the whole thing, that Charlie got a call at Cornell about this. So he gets a call from his brother, Jeff, on January 29th, basically saying, like, what are we going to do? about mom like she's she's in danger 
basically. Like, I think they thought their mother's life was in jeopardy from their father. I think it was in jeopardy. It was. That house was rife with domestic violence. It wasn't just Jim Tan to Gene. I think he was also abusive to the boys. I don't want to demonize the victim, but he was apparently a real bully at his work. And he was definitely a bully at home. So Charlie Tan and his mother returned back to their home in Rochester. And then the police get a further call on February 9th. Now, this is four days after February 5th when they left, right? right? And the Rochester police get yet another call from the Tan household. This time it's Jean Tan and she's hysterical. And she is saying that her husband has been shot, that her husband is dead, and that her son did it to protect her. One son, what is the address of the emergency? Yes, hi. My name is Jean Tan. I heard of argument in my son. Ma'am, I can't understand anything you're saying. Does anyone need an ambulance? Who's already dead? You're who? Are you in a safe spot? Yes, I am. We need you to wait outside of the house for the police officer's safety. Your son was trying to protect you? Yes. The police come. Immediately. And Charlie Tan and his mother, they're both on the porch, hands up. They're speaking in Chinese, so the police separate them so they can speak to them separately. And Charlie immediately says, he didn't read him his rights, but he immediately says, I had no choice, I had to do it. So he's arrested, but let's talk about what the police find in the house. Because what they find in the house is not somebody who was just murdered. Actually, they can tell that Jim Tan's body has been there for a few days. There's a smell of decomposition. They find Jim Tan slumped over his desk, and he's clearly been there for a few days. He was shot three times, and there's no sign of struggle. He's just simply at his desk. It doesn't look like there was a fight. Nothing's disturbed. He's been shot in the head. So his head has been kind of decimated and the blood is congealed on the desk. So he's clearly been there for several days. I read also that they found some evidence of either cat bites or dog bites on Jim Tan. I don't know if they had a dog. It's a weird little detail. I'm not sure, but the whole thing is pretty gruesome. So he's been left there for four days. And where is the gun at this point, Laura? Charlie returned the gun to the garage and he tells the police immediately where the gun is. So they arrest Charlie. What happens is this phenomenal outpouring of support for him. That's right. I mean, people are tying purple ribbons around their mailboxes to support domestic abuse. His Cornell fraternity brothers come out to support him. Yeah, I mean, to the tune of about like $45,000. People get big, they get small. It's like a grassroots. His friend Annie sets up a GoFundMe site. He's released on $50,000 bail. That's right. And I want to just speak to the domestic violence more because I do think that the neighbors saw some of that. They saw bruises on Jean. They saw evidence. I agree. They did see. I think a lot of people saw. And this is a good example of why people should say something if they see something, because this didn't just happen. This was happening for years. Right. And And they they do an autopsy on Jim Tan and they find no defensive wound. So he was clearly just sitting there at his desk working and he was shot. 
So there wasn't a fight happening or... That's right. What I found interesting too was that Jim Tan had emailed a colleague at 8.40 p.m. on the 5th of February. And then he did not email anybody further that night the next day. And this was extremely unusual. He was a business owner, like, get right back to you. Okay, Laura, so the trial begins in September of 2015. And the judge's name is Pian Piano. And the prosecutor's name is William Garvin. And Charlie Tan is represented by somebody named Jim Noble. All right, Sarah, we often, depending on the case, but on this case, I'm going to have to go with Gargan here. And the prosecution basically feels that they have a slam dunk case. They have basically a confession or an utterance. They have a gun. They have fingerprints on the shells. They found three shells in the bedroom or in the office room where he was found. They have Charlie's friend who bought the gun. They have his mother's 911 call saying he did it. They have the email, the purchase. They have him clearing the bank account, the plane tickets. I mean, Sarah, I, I mean, what else do we need here but a video? He did it. I mean, that's basically what the prosecution is saying here. We have a slam dunk case and... The prosecution is very confident that this is an open and shut case, but they make it very clear here that Charlie's potential is not what is on, and life is not what's on trial here. He was a great kid. He did have great potential. However, what is on trial here and what the jury needs to look at are his behaviors during those days. And the fact that he killed his father is the issue at hand. I think in a really surprising move, Laura, the defense nobles did not highlight the domestic abuse in this case. They kind of used it in this maneuver of, we don't know who pulled the trigger. And in fact, in their closing arguments, they point the finger directly and hold the gun up to Jean Tan and say, look, she has a lot more motive than Charlie for pulling the trigger and killing her husband. And it really kind of threw the jury. But I wanted to also speak to that a little bit We pre-recorded this, and after the fact, I thought about this very simple thing. Jim Tan's last email is at 8.40. Honestly, okay, if I'm going to be totally upfront about it, I thought, like, what a dick move on the part of the defense attorney to pull Gene Tan into this. But the more I think about it, the more I think that Gene Tan had a much better motive for doing it. She suffered years of abuse. The imminent threat was to her. I'm just saying that what threw me about this case, too, was, yes, she has these panicked calls all along the line to 911 about the abuse that she's suffering from her husband. I buy that. What I don't buy, Laura, is her call on February 9th, which is panicked and and disoriented and, oh, my God, it's as if the killing happened right then and there. And that's not true. Four days had gone by for this woman to process the fact that her husband had been killed. Jim Tan was killed sometime during February 5th. The other thing that I think is that if he were killed right after 840 is a bit of a timestamp in terms and we don't know exactly when Jim Tan was killed on February 5th. But if his typical behavior was to answer emails and he had received an email from somebody else, if he did not answer, I'm going to say that he was killed shortly after that email was sent to him. The fact is, Charlie Tan is with his friends at that point. 
Charlie Tan comes home, you know, he gets to his friend's house, Jacob's house at 10 o'clock, correct? Correct. And prior to that, he is having dinner with his friend Annie. So I'm not saying it's a direct alibi for the shooting. And also, if you look at the verbiage of what is said to the police, Charlie Tan does say, and I used to think when the defense brought this up, this whole statement about, I had to do it, I had to protect my mom. Protecting the mom could also mean protecting her, covering her for the murder. Listen, I know you disagree with me, okay? But I kind of agree with the defense at this point that she had a lot more motive to do it. There's a big shame in having the mother having done it. So it's much easier to put it on the son. I am generally a prosecutorial person. I'm going to give it to the defense on this particular move. It was a very Perry Mason moment, which you very rarely see in trials. And it does create reasonable doubt. I understand that's why they did it. I think it does make the jurors question the case. However, I think Charlie Tan had many, many more options to protect his mother than buying a weapon. I think he could have talked to his coach. I think he could have called law enforcement. I don't believe all law enforcement would have ignored him. What, Laura, what law enforcement? If you can't call the local cops and have them show up and protect your mother, I'm sorry, total fail. On the part of I agree the that law enforcement failed there. I don't believe all law enforcement would have failed him. I don't. I but, believe but, his but coach. What, but, I, but, but who who are you going to call? Call the local police. I think his coach would have been an excellent person to go to. What's a coach going to do? Okay, get a baseball bat. What good's being done now? What good is being done now? What good did killing him do? I don't believe. And what happens the next time someone says my dad was abusive and blows him away? Do we then say that? That's okay because he was abusive. Where do we draw the line, Sarah? What makes it okay? When are you saying it's okay to kill your abuser? Well, that's a whole other argument, Laura. But the fact is, I put this at the feet of the local law enforcement in that if they had protected, and I have to do a little shout out for Mass, if there's any indication, if they get a call for a domestic violence call and there's any indication, they arrest the person right away. I'm surprised by this. I do think, obviously, a lot of contact with the NYPD, the police officers I know would never allow this. Never. I, I think that... Because they're good cops. I can't, and, and I don't want to minimize the police doing their jobs, but I don't think they did them well in this situation. I wonder if... If they weren't in an affluent community, if things wouldn't have been different. I think that Jim Tam was a very commanding presence. I think he was a powerful, wealthy man. Oh, I think he totally, I, like, my wife's, she's she, being childish. I mean, right. he says and, as much on these 911 And calls. I think they believed him. And I think that this is where we see privilege. But, don't you, other see, cases. but don't you see the escalation? I mean, I do see the escalation. But, but, no, I don't can, deny any of the abuse. Can I finish? Oh, my God. Jesus <laughs> Christ, you drive me crazy crazy. <laughs> so on February 3rd, she has a card for like to get a restraining order. She's got a court appointment. Jean Tan does. Yes. Okay. So she is starting to take action, which as we know, in really horrible domestic abuse cases, the violence will accelerate. I'm saying that I think that Jean Tan was in imminent danger from this person. I think she was too, but I think maybe starting with a restraining order would have been a better way to go than getting a gun and blowing his head off. I agree. To what extent do we think, if he's strangling her and he's drunk, 
which is what happened on January 28th, mm-hmm. the thin line between that and killing her is very, very... So we very well could be looking at a case where Jean Tan is the victim. I just don't think And it we've was... seen that in other cases. And I agree with you. I just don't think we can make this type of justice acceptable. Because I think the minute we do, and we set the bar there, then... We find other cases, and then when is it okay? I I have to just bring up, too, and it's not a very popular case to feel sympathetic towards the Menendez brothers, but one thing that Abrams, their defense attorney, did argue, I think, very well, was that even if there wasn't any imminent threat from the parents, that the pattern of domestic abuse that had happened to those boys and sexual abuse put them in a position where they felt constantly threatened. She did it well enough to get a hung jury, but they're in jail for the rest of their lives, Sarah. So I think that most people do agree that it's just, unless you're in imminent danger, that it's just not okay. And this was definitely a premeditated murder. I have to say, Sarah, I'm much more of a prosecutorial person. um, And I'm going to give props here to the defense because this was like a Hail Mary. And this was really actually a very good move because it created reasonable doubt. And it confused the jury. So after You mean them pointing the finger finger at at Gene. It confused the jury. And after 54 hours of deliberation, they're still undecided. And they're split. What are they split, Sarah? I think it was uh, eight to four. In favor of guilt. That's right. But they couldn't reach a decision. And so Judge Piano basically called a mistrial based on a hung jury. And this is pretty controversial because the jury feels like they're split eight to four and they feel like they could have reached a consensus. They feel like they were close and he was getting ready to run for political office, which he later wins. So there was some speculation that he kind of wanted the trial over with so he could focus on his campaign. This would kind of continue to, to follow him as a problem. And he had made some statements to the press, too, about how he thought, like, Charlie Tan was a good kid, which a judge needs to be. You you might very well feel that. Yeah, you should be impartial. You've got to be impartial. Exactly. You pointed out something really valid, too, that any decent defense attorney wants a mistrial deemed by a judge that they're going to put in a motion to dismiss. It's standard, and generally it's denied. So when there's a mistrial, the defense will always make the motion to have the case dismissed, usually for lack of evidence or for a number of reasons. But in a really surprising move, judge starts to talk about the merit of the dismissal, and everybody's, like, super shocked. And judge starts to say there's not enough evidence for this case. And then Gargan, the prosecutor, freaks out. And as the judge is basically granting the motion to dismiss the trial, Gargan, the prosecutor, is like jumping up and down. He's like, can I be heard? Can I be heard? And the judge is like, no, you can't. I am going to like throw handcuffs on you if you try to speak. And Gargan is like, bring it. And this is actually extremely unusual. You often see this between judges and defense attorneys, but to see a prosecution or a DA and a judge going at it this way, I mean, nobody wants to have a bad relationship with a judge, especially a DA, and he really goes at it. And But I have to say, I think he was out of line, P.M. Piano. Go down the line a little, you know, P.M. Piano winds up eventually getting censured. However, Sarah, his decisions are unable to be reversed because he is not censured for his trial decisions. He's censured for talking about the case. Right, talking to the press and saying Charlie Tan's a good Right. So even though many appellate attorneys do 
disagree with him and because he says there's not enough evidence. That's his reason for dismissing. And many appellate judges disagree with him. It's still not reversible because it's done on solid legal ground. Yeah. As, as crazy as that may sound. Because to look at a case, to me, to look at a case like this and say there isn't enough evidence is ridiculous. I know you're going to go on the other way, but Charlie Chan's in jail today. And why is that, Sarah? Okay. Well... <laughs> Because the DA found another way to get him. That's right. So Charlie Tan, who is a Canadian citizen, was going back and forth to Canada after he gets his freedom. He can't believe it. His supporters no, can't No, he walked it. out of jail that day. I he mean, did. people were shocked. Yeah. And so what they decide to do is they decide to prosecute him on the gun charge, which carries to 20 years. And that's a federal charge. It actually carries up to 25 years. Oh, up years. to 25 years. Yep. And you federal, you do 85% of your time. And I think they put pressure on Whitney Knickerbocker, who bought him the gun. He did, and he actually only got five years probation in exchange for testifying against Charlie. So at this point... Charlie is in jail, in federal prison, and he has now admitted to killing his father in hopes of having his sentence reduced. That's right. I don't know why he made that move, though. He made that move because he's now saying that his defense attorneys should have brought in the abuse in the original trial. Right. And they should have. And they, well, I think that that's questionable because the case was dismissed and he got off on murder charges. I think that was a lucky chain of events and due to Tan's own likability. I wouldn't want to convict Tan. It would be it's not about likability, though. It's <sighs> about his behavior. And I think that Gargan made a great point when he said this. And I think we, we see this too much. And we see this a lot in our cases where you see these really privileged people who look so great on paper is like, this isn't about someone's potential. And it's not about their past. It's about the behavior on that day. I just, I just think Tan is a case of somebody who was just trying to protect his mother. And whether that was actually pulling the trigger or buying the gun, no one else was protecting Jean Tan. Laura, we're not going to decide this. We're going to just have to agree to disagree about Charlie Tan. The only way... <sighs> like we do on most things. <laughs> only way we're going to be able to figure this out is a solid game of sprint football. Are you on? Sarah, I'm a lot bigger than you, but you're like a small and scrappy. But I am total. I'm small but wiry and I'm fast. You are, but I'm confident I could take you down like I would take down the defense. Come on, UM. Let's go. Okay. You you know UM would kick Harvard's ass in football. (laughs) We want to do a special thank you shout out to Steve this week for being such a huge help about giving us so much information on Cornell. And we want to wish him a very big congratulations on his upcoming nuptials to Felicia. Go, Steve. Go, Steve. Steve is just so wonderful. And I'm going to say it. Congratulations, Felicia. He's adorable. Yep. He's adorable. And I just think... Good luck to you both. Good luck to you both. I'm wishing you the best of luck. We want to tell you about a really great podcast called Around the Coffee Pot. Our friends Victoria and her mom Vita, they do this really fabulous. I actually, Sarah, I listen to it while I'm drinking coffee in the morning. Oh, nice. Yeah. And they talk about crimes and mysteries and just kind of all the things you want to talk about while you're just kind of like having coffee with your friends. And that's how I feel when I'm listening to them. I just feel like I'm having coffee with a pal. And Victoria has like the cutest little boy you've ever seen. He's absolutely adorable. So stay tuned and listen to their trailer and definitely check them out because they're really fabulous. So stay tuned for their trailer around the coffee pot. Uh, 
there's nothing better than the smell of fresh coffee. Whether it be on your way to work, that first cup before the kids get up, or at a friend's house as you catch up on your busy life. With today's busy and hectic schedules, sometimes getting together with friends for coffee isn't realistic. Never fear, just pull up a chair, grab your favorite drink, and tune in to Around the Coffee Pot podcast. In our podcast, join myself, Victoria, and my mother, Vita, as we have cups of coffee and discuss true crime stories, mysteries, mom life, or anything fun that comes to our minds like family memories. You will really feel like you're in the room and among friends while you listen. So don't miss out and come sit with us around the coffee pot.